The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'd like you to open your Bibles for now to the 18th chapter of Matthew. I'd like you to find the scripture rather quickly. We're on our lightning trek through the Gospel of Matthew. Those of you that have been here for a while, you understand the irony of that statement. Have you seen the commercial? I don't know if it's still on TV now about with the, um, the, the Comcast commercial with the tortoises, the slow skis. Okay, that's what we are going through Matthew. Lightning speed. So we'll find this rather quickly here. And today our topic again is the subject of forgiveness. Now if you'd stand with me please as we read God's word. We'll begin at verse number 21. Where in just a moment here we'll see beginning in verse 23. That Jesus tells a parable about forgiveness. Verse number 21. Then came Peter to him and said. Lord how oft shall my brother sin against me. And I forgive him till seven times. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servant saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. and. We thank you for this great day that we have to come and worship you. We thank you for our country that's just been sung about. And, Lord, we put all of our hope, our faith, our confidence in you to heal our land. Lord, speak to our hearts today as we look into this text of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we return to a subject that's a vitally important part of Scripture. There are a few concepts in the Word of God, that we can speak with just one word, and that one word defines some very important things for us. One of those things is grace. We are fallen, helpless creatures, and therefore we need the grace of God to recover us from 
uh, the depths of our depravity. Another word is the word love. And perhaps I should have put that word first because despite the great misunderstanding about love, all of us know that what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Then there are other words. There are words like mercy and faith. Those are single words that define very important concepts. Or if you're into bigger Bible words, you might think about justification or sanctification. But this word forgiveness, which is our subject today, is a word that really expresses just a desire, a dire essential necessity for us. We must be forgiven. We've sinned against God. We've sinned against the holy and righteous God. We've fallen short of His standard. We've missed the mark of God's perfection. We've transgressed His holy laws. And because of that, the Word of God says that the wrath of God is on us and we are bound to the punishment of an eternal hell. But love entered and grace entered and mercy entered and God brought a way by which we could stand justified before Him, sanctified in holiness, which the Bible says is the only way that we can come into the presence of God. And the method that God has of doing this is to forgive our sins. And he forgives our sins based upon the payment that was made by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross of Calvary. Our sins were so great that it took the death of God's own son to pay for them. Now this parable in the scripture today talks about this tremendous debt that we owed to God This debt was paid by Jesus Christ in order that we might obtain forgiveness. And since we have been forgiven of so much, the Bible teaches through this parable that we also ought to be forgiving of others. And when the verses that are preceding this reading today, Jesus had given instructions about the way that we are to go about checking sin in the church. God expects a holy church. He wants a church that's without spot and blemishes. He doesn't want the stain of sin to be upon it. And so he tells us that when sin is found in his church, that something must be done about it. And so he showed us in the previous text, in verses 15 through 17, that there are certain steps that have to be taken in order to get sin out of the church and to deal with those who transgress God's law. Now that previous section then is about church discipline, but mostly it dealt with the heart of the one who is to be forgiven. That he should see his fault and he should confess his sins and then be restored to the fellowship of the church. But in this section, the focus changes. And now we're talking about the heart of the one who's been wronged by that person. That we are to have a compassionate heart. If someone has wronged you, you should have a compassionate heart and be willing to forgive that person of their transgression against you and have them come back into the fellowship of the church. So this focus changes, and this compassionate heart of forgiveness is one that is best exemplified by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, our first thought as we resume this study today is that Jesus demanded a forgiveness that was way beyond normal expectations. He demanded forgiveness that was above and beyond what we would think is reasonable. Now really, this is a type of forgiveness that can only be given by those that themselves have been forgiven of a tremendously incalculable, unpayable debt. And so that tells us that we must be talking about Christians in this text because we're the only ones that really understand this. 
we are ones who have been forgiven of this great debt that we owed against God. Because of the terrible crimes that we have committed, we owed a debt that we could not pay, and yet the Bible says that God freely forgives us. Now, in verses 21 and 22, Peter approached Christ with a question about forgiveness. Now, he just heard these previous teachings about an offending brother in the church, and so he just wanted to know, how many times do we have to forgive somebody who's done something wrong against us? So he came to Christ and he said, how often should we forgive? And he followed with his own suggestion, what he thought was a magnanimous gesture. And so he asked Jesus, do we forgive till seven times? Peter said, seven times? Isn't that enough? And his thought was, that's at least twice as many times, more than twice as many times as the rabbis have taught us to forgive. Well, the rabbi said that three times was enough forgiveness. The Babylonian Talmud said that you forgive a person one time, and then you forgive a person a second time, and then you forgive them a third time, but the fourth time you do not forgive him. And so they had reduced forgiveness to a commodity that could be traded for such and such amount, and Peter had bought into that idea that forgiveness is something uh, like a commercial transaction, that we, we just generously offer seven times forgiveness, and that'll be enough because it's more than the customary three. But the response that Jesus gave to Peter was quite shocking. And here's what we learned last week. First last week, now point number one, was that it's not a question of how many times I should forgive, but why should I forgive at all? Not a question of how many times I should forgive, but why should I forgive at all? Jesus said, not until seven times, but until 70 times seven. And that's not an indication that we should try to keep up with it, that we tally the number of times that someone has wronged us and we're to have in our heart that they've reached their limit of forgiveness. But no, Jesus is actually trying to teach here unlimited forgiveness. There is no count to be taken. There aren't any tallies to score. Forgiveness is not a commodity to be traded. So there is no number that's put on forgiveness. It's not a question of how many times should I forgive, but rather, why should I forgive at all? And to answer that question, Jesus illustrated with a parable. And he demonstrated, number two, that you must give an account to God. So he began by telling a story about a king that called in his provincial governors from all part of his kingdoms, kingdom, and they were to give a report of the tribute, the, the taxes that they had collected. Now, the king in the parable represents God, and the parable is showing us here that we all must give an account of our lives to God. That we've all been put as stewards over God's creation, and one day God is going to call us into judgment, and we'll have to give an account of what we've done with all that God has trusted us with, and we must give an account of how we have kept God's commandments. Now, in this parable, the provincial governors came and they gave their reports, and it was learned that one of them had embezzled a huge amount of funds from the king's treasury. Now, the amount was staggering. Each of the governors was expected to bring in their collection and present it to the king, but this person had nothing to bring, and he had accumulated a debt of 10,000 talents. 
Now, he was responsible to bring all of that money and hand it over to the king, but he had nothing, and the 10,000 talents that he owed, as I showed you last week, is a debt that's insurmountable. It's actually a debt that's greater than all that Rome would have collected from all of the Middle Eastern provinces in a year. 10,000 talents this man owed. That would be the wages of an average worker for 160,000 years. It would take more than 2,000 lifetimes to earn this amount of money. And so the debt was just incredible. And Jesus purposely used this hyperbole to show us that it's a debt that was never in this man's ability to pay. And that illustrates the debt that we owe to God And that one day we're going to be called into account for, we'll be summoned to give an account of the tremendous debt that's owed to God. Now that shows us then thirdly, that you owe God a debt that you cannot pay. The debt represents the sins that you've committed. Now like this man owed 10,000 talents, you owe a debt that's beyond your ability. It's impossible to calculate the numbers of sins that you've committed And it's impossible to put a price on those sins because even one sin, as we all know, one sin was enough to condemn the entire human race forever. And the scripture says that when you break just one of God's commandments, that you're guilty of breaking all of them. This is what it says in the book of James. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point... He is guilty of all. And you haven't just broken one of God's law and broken it only once. You've broken all of God's law and broken it so many times that it can't be counted. Now, if you've attended any of our outreach sessions, the premise of the soul-winning approach that we're learning in these sessions is to do the very thing that Jesus does in this parable. And that's to present a person with undeniable proof that he has broken all of God's commandments. And it's to show a person that he is condemned by God, and then to have that person with his own mouth admit his guilt. And it's to show him that there is no way that he can satisfy God with anything that he could do. And so one of the approaches is to talk about the sin of lying. And I encourage you to read the bulletin article this morning. I have a little bit to say about lying. But another one of these is about the sin of adultery. Now, many, perhaps you, all, many of you in the congregation today, you'd say, well, I've never committed adultery. I would never do that. But then we know that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Mount, that, that if a person looks after a woman, a man looks after a woman to lust after her, that he's already committed adultery in his heart. There's no one that's ever been able to resist the sin of lust in the heart. And so what that does is just compound the sin and show that we owe God a debt that we cannot possibly pay. Now, the extreme debt is demonstrated by the price that God had to pay to redeem you from the condemnation of sin. And that price is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way the debt can be paid. And this payment that Christ made is the only payment that God will accept. And Christ made that payment when he died for our sins on the cross. So the point that Jesus establishes here is the terrible debt that's been placed upon all of us because of sin. 
This man owed 10,000 talents, an insurmountable debt, and he could not pay it. And so the judgment of the king fell on him. Now notice verse number 25. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So because the man couldn't pay the debt, the king ordered that he should be sold, that his wife would be sold, that his children would be sold into slavery. Now this is kind of an interesting point here because this is a a custom that was not done in Israel. This was something that was done in the nations that surrounded Israel. Now although Israel did permit a system of indentured servitude, it was not their practice to sell people into slavery to pay off debts. Now, in Exodus 22, verse number 3, it speaks of people that are sold to pay off things. Leviticus 25, verse number 39, speaks of people selling people for debts. But it also there very specifically says that a person could not become a slave, but he was to be treated as a hired servant. Now, in the time of Nehemiah and of Amos, the people of God had broken that commandment, and they were, in fact, in Israel, selling people into slavery. So Jesus relates here not something that's done in Israel, not a, not a Jewish practice, but this is a Gentile practice. It was common for other nations to do this. Now, why, why would Jesus choose that? Well, I think that it heightens the severity of the punishment in Peter's mind. Peter knew that this was not a practice of his people, but this is a practice of Gentile nations. So this is what the king did. He ordered the man and his entire family to be sold into slavery to make a payment against this impossible debt. Now we notice in verse number 26 the extreme desperation of the man. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And so the thought of this punishment came crashing down on his head and that cast him into the depths of despair. He knew that he would never be free of this debt, that he would never get out of slavery because it was a debt that was impossible. 2,000 lifetimes would not be enough to pay him out of this debt. He could never reach the amount of the debt. And so he knew that he was completely hopeless. And there weren't any excuses why he had incurred the debt. That didn't matter. Excuses wouldn't help anyway. And so there wasn't anything left for him to do than to beg the king for mercy. He said, please give me more time and I'll pay you all. But that was an empty promise. Payment was impossible. Full payment was impossible. Now, in looking at this parable, we have to see that this is a picture of hell. That no one is ever going to get out of hell because no one can ever possibly pay the price for one sin, much less pay for all the sins that they've committed. Hell is an eternal place. And this is why that you need to take care of your sins and seek God's forgiveness before you leave this life, because you'll never, eternity is not long enough to pay it, and that's where you'll be for all of eternity. So we look at the foolishness of the man in one sense, but notice what he does. He fell down. And he offered the king what he knew, and the king knew he could not deliver. He said, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. So he fell down in his hopelessness, and that was a good thing, because that is the way that God wants us to come to him. He fell down, and he begged. But it's as if he didn't really understand the weight of the debt that was against him. 
And that's the way that many people come to God. They come to God with a, with a promise of repayment. They say, God, I will pay you all. And they say that because they think that there's something that's good in them that they can offer God and it will satisfy God. Oh, there are people that get into terrible messes and they try to bargain with God and they say, God, if you'll just get me out of this, I promise that I will serve you forever. When a child is dying or a loved one is dying, they say, God, would you please heal this person, heal them, and I'll do everything that you want me to do. And you know what usually happens with those kinds of confessions? They don't do anything. They they never start serving God, especially if the child dies. They don't start serving God. See, they thought that they could trade with God, that they could get forgiveness, and they try to buy God with a promise. But all that's so foolish, because you know the way that God wants us to come to him? You must come to him broken down. You must come to him completely humbled, completely bankrupt, realizing that you have nothing at all that you can offer God. You can't trade your efforts for what it took God to purchase with his own blood. You can't offer anything that God wants. And so when people are faced with the perfection of God's commandments, they see there is nothing they can do. There is no answer for their sinfulness. There is no goodness in them. As Isaiah said, from the top of the head to the soles of the feet, there is no goodness in us. There's nothing but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. God wants nothing that you have to offer. You have nothing to offer him. So the man begged and he pleaded. Now look what happened in verse 27. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. So the king was compassionate, and he forgave him this tremendous debt, and he let him go. And this is another one of the important lessons that we learn in the parable. This is a picture of the marvelous grace of God. Now, fourthly, God's grace releases you from payment. Now, there's, there's too much to pay. There is no hope that you can repay your debt. Even if God said, well, I will forgive you all of your past sins... And go and sin no more. Do you know what would happen? In about five seconds, you would do what? You would sin again, and you'd be back in debt again. How long would it take you to commit the next sin? Well, God's grace is enough that it pays for sins not only that we've committed in the past, but he pays for sins of all time. That's what God has done for us through Christ. He releases you of all the debt because Christ paid it all. Now, we learn in 1 John that the blood of Christ keeps on cleansing us from sin, that the debt is paid in full and forever. And it has to be that way because one more sin would condemn you to hell again. So what do you do? Well, you sin again, and you sin again, and you sin again. And what does God do? He cancels the debts. He keeps on forgiving. And so do you see the parallel that Jesus is drawing for us here? Jesus says that your forgiveness of others can have no limit because this is the way that God has forgiven you. He's forgiving you and keeps on forgiving you. Now notice how the king forgave. Did the man do anything? Did he pay anything? No. He was released fully and freely from the debt. He gave nothing because he had nothing to offer. And so all that he could do was ask for mercy. And he said, please don't give me what I deserve. 
Give me what I do not deserve. Grant me mercy and grace. And the king was compassionate on him, and he gave him mercy and grace, and he gave him what he did not deserve. He granted him forgiveness. And so the man was loose from the debt and had no responsibility to pay it. And that's what God has done for every believer in Jesus Christ. He has fully and freely released you of the debt that you owed against him and has taken away all of your responsibility to pay it. Now, do you start to get the picture of how and why Jesus illustrates forgiveness in this way? You look at the tremendous debt that we have been forgiven. And what this man should have done was thoroughly contemplated what had just happened to him. He had been forgiven much. But we look and we see what he did, that he scarcely left the king's presence. When in verse number 28 we read, But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And so the man walked out from the king, and he was scot-free. There were no obligations. He was fully forgiven. He was not sold. His wife was not sold. His children were not sold. They should have been, but the king forgave him all of his debt. But then as soon as this man was forgiven, he went out, and he found another man that owed him a debt. He found a fellow servant. And the language indicates here that he purposely went looking for him. This wasn't somebody he stumbled upon, but he went looking for this man who owed him a debt, and he grabbed this fellow servant by the throat, and he treated him roughly, and he said, pay me all that you owe me. Now, we notice the amount of debt that this man owed. It was a debt, and it translates here to about 17 to $20. He grabbed this man by the throat, and he threatened him over $17. And he demanded that he should pay it all. But the man couldn't. Now, he was at a position where he didn't have the money on him. He couldn't pay the debt at that exact time. But you know something about his debt? He could have paid it. It wasn't that big of a debt. It's not an outrageous debt. It was a very small debt. He could have paid it. And so he began to beg. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Now, notice the manner of his begging. He didn't fall down and worship as we saw the man earlier. He was a fellow servant. Now, if you look at verse number 26, the first servant fell down and worshipped. And that's because the king deserved worship. That's exactly what he should have done. He should have bowed before the king reverently. But here, there is no worship due because they are fellow servants. They're just alike. This is one servant dealing with another servant. And so he says, have patience with me and I'll pay the all. Now, do you think there was a difference between the all in verse number 26 and the all in verse number 29? There was a huge difference. This man owed a debt that was one six hundred thousandth of the debt that was owed in verse number 26. Here we're talking about two days wages versus 160,000 days of wages. So we're talking about a very minuscule debt. And then the words that he used, I mean, these are words that should have just haunted the unthankful man. The poor man, the poor servant repeated the very same words the man had said only minutes before. Have patience with me and I will pay you all. Now, what does that teach us? Well, fifthly, there is no offense against you 
that is greater than your offense against God. Now, you need to personalize that statement. There is no offense against me that's greater than the offense I have committed against God. Now, the second man's debt was a manageable debt. It could be paid. Our offense against God is unpayable. The debt of the other man was manageable, and our debt against God is unmanageable. But do you know how many people act? They act as if the hurt that someone has done them can never be paid. It can never be reconciled. And if it could, it has to come at the price of blood or vengeance. So they don't have any patience to restore a relationship. They've been wrong, and they just won't turn loose of it. They keep the grudge. And that bitterness just wells up in them, and it poisons the church with anger and strife. Just a few years ago, we had someone in our church that became angry at another member. This was a lady that felt that she'd been wronged. And rather than take the steps that we find in verses 15 through 17, and to try and to restore the relationship, she decided that she would not forgive that person. Now, this was a debt that could have been paid. It was a relationship that could have been restored. But she went for the throat instead. And she said, no. And she walked out of the church, and she's never returned. Now, she still holds that bitterness in her heart. And whenever you hold on to bitterness, it doesn't hurt the other person. It hurts you. A bitter person is destroyed from within. Now, the other person has probably long forgotten that issue. That person is still with us. But the unforgiving person is still on the outside and still holding that grudge. And I sometimes wonder about that. Is that kind of a person really saved? A person who acts that way, can they really be saved? I mean, when faced with the example of Christ and the forgiveness of God, she said, I will not forgive. Well, how does a Christian act that way? Do you see what Jesus is saying? Nothing has ever been done to you like what you did to God. And yet God forgave you. And he continues to forgive you. So how could you be like this man and not forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ? So Jesus would say to Peter, Peter, if a person wrongs you 10,000 times, it does not reach the magnitude of your sins against the Father. Peter, keep on forgiving because God has forgiven you of so much. But the man wouldn't forgive, so he had the other man thrown into prison. Now we go on, we look at what happens in verse number 31. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. So the other servants saw what this man did, and they were brokenhearted over it. Well, who are the other servants? We have to remember that Jesus is telling us the parable for a purpose. He just finished up teaching about church discipline. And he talked about how you take one or two witnesses with you and you go to talk to someone who's wronged you. And this could very well be his comparison here, that these are the witnesses that we find in verses 15 to 17. That these are faithful, forgiven people of the church. And these are folks that would take all steps that are necessary to make reconciliation. That they would do everything that they could to keep the peace and harmony of the church. And so they were sorry for the way that this man treated the poor servant. And they would have made things right if they could. But the forgiven servant wouldn't. Instead, he beat his debtor down. He showed him no mercy. And so they sorrowed over the poor man who would not be forgiven. 
And, and I wonder how many times are people lost to us because of the hard-heartedness of unforgiving church members. They sorrowed over the poor servant, and they also sorrowed over the man that had been forgiven so much, and yet he would not show the same kindness to another. And do you know someone else they sorrowed over? They sorrowed over the king. They were sorry that the king's compassion had been so grievously abused. They were sorry that the character of his righteous rule was smirched by one of his servants. And we think about that. How, how often do we badly reflect upon the righteous rule of Christ? How often do we drag the name of the Savior in the mud by unholy, ungrateful, bitter attitudes? I mean, how often do we give others occasion to blaspheme our king? Now, I know church members. I've been in the business a long, long time, you might say. And I've seen so many, and there's probably some right here today, that you can barely stand the sight of another church member. You have malice in your heart towards that church member. And how many times have I, have I had to counsel with church members that have been hurt by hard-hearted Christians? And how many times have I had to sit and explain away the cruelty of one church member to another? Now, would you look at, back at verse number 6 to see how Jesus feels about this? In the 6th verse, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, do you see how the one that offended has now actually become the victim? The little child that needs to learn from those that are more mature in the church, needs to learn how to act and what to do, and often makes mistakes, instead of being corrected and forgiven, that person is beaten down by cruel Christians. Christians that have been forgiven much, and yet they're unwilling to forgive another person. You see, you can't be on the end of a disciplinary action trying to root out sin in the church and find that sin on someone and then have them repent and not be willing to forgive them of what they've done. You actually become worse than that person. You have been forgiven much and so you need to be ready to forgive those that have done far less than anything that you have been forgiven of. Now, the other, the other servants were sorry about it, and they went to the king to talk to him about it. And what is it that we do? Well, as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we see this happen in the church, we go to the Lord in prayer, and we earnestly talk with him about this, to do something about it, to solve this. So the servants were sorry, and they went to the king. Well, now the king's aware of it. Look at verse 32. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, he was angry, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So the king called him in and said, Thou wicked servant. Sixthly, God is angry at sin and punishes disobedience. Now, the king called him in. He said, thou wicked servant. The king was angry at this treatment. He'd been so gracious to forgive. And this was a sin. This was sinful. And God is angry at sin. Now, admittedly, 
This is one of the problems that we face when we look at parables and try to interpret them, that here we come up with a problem of interpretation. Was this man saved or was he not? Now, there are some people that say, no, he wasn't saved, and thus we have the anger and the punishment. But we have to keep everything in the context, don't we? The man must represent a Christian because he'd been truly forgiven of his debt. And the analogy of a forgiven debt doesn't hold up if he hadn't truly been forgiven. So how do we deal with this next statement? How do we explain this, that the king turned him over to the tormentors? What does that mean? Well, it's actually the only time that this word tormentors is used in the Scriptures or in the New Testament. And these were officials that were appointed by the courts to inflict pain upon those that were guilty of atrocious crimes. And this is how the Lord considers this. This is a very terrible crime. So what does he do? Well, Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a clue. Uh, There the Scriptures talk about chastisement. I encourage you to read that at a later time. And the scripture says that God chastens his child, and he says that chastisement is grievous. And that's what God will do to you if you're unwilling to forgive. The heavy hand of chastisement will fall on you, and the Bible says it's very painful. And Christians experience that because of their unfaithfulness, because of their contentiousness and the bitter spirit that they have with other people. And so Jesus said in verse 35, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Now going back and thinking a little bit, what have we learned about church discipline? Well, one of the things we learned is that a person that won't repent can, be ex- can expect to be turned over to the, to the uh, destruction of the flesh. Now remember, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we ask, well, is that person lost? When it says that God turns him over to the destruction of the flesh, is he lost? Well, no. It means his body and his mind are terribly afflicted, but his soul is not lost. And so when God turns you over to the destruction of the flesh, what he does is he removes his hand of protection from you. Now, he doesn't remove your salvation but he removes that protection from you so that Satan can have his way with you until you come to the place that you repent of your sin. And that's what this part of it's all about. This man would experience the chastisement of the Heavenly Father. Now, what have we learned? We're at the last points. We're going to go in just a minute. What have we learned from this parable? Well, don't, don't miss this last very important part. Take note of this, number seven. We are most like Christ when we forgive. Now we go back to verse number 33. Shouldest not, this is the king says, Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? The king said, Shouldn't you have compassion on him as I showed pity on you? Can't you be more like me? And isn't that exactly what we strive to do in our Christian lives? That we want, most of all, to be like Christ. And what is the greatest thing that Christ did? He forgave you of all of your sins. The king said, I forgave all that debt. And what was all that debt? It was the debt that couldn't be paid. It's the insurmountable debt. A debt that condemned you to the fires of hell forever and you could not pay it. And eternity in hell was not long enough to pay it. But he forgave you. 
Now, what is it that you need most in the world? Do you need money? Do you need happiness? And that's what a lot of people look for. And they think that, well, when you become a Christian, you'll just become superiorly happy, and that's what we really need. Do you need fame? Fortune, fame, happiness, is that what you need? No. The thing that you need the very most is forgiveness. And that's because you're doomed without forgiveness. And that is the whole point of Jesus coming into the world. He suffered and he died on the cross to give you forgiveness. And so when are you most like him? It's when you do what he did. His best work, his chief work was forgiveness. And you are most like Christ when you forgive those that hurt you. Now, do you see why it's so appropriate that this teaching should come after verses 15 to 20? We can get so easily unbalanced when we go on a witch hunt for sin. And we do need to do this. We need to destroy sin in the church. And we need to ask people to repent. God tells us to do that. But when they do, we have to be ready to offer forgiveness. We cannot hold a grudge against people that have repented and ask God for his mercy and his grace. Because he fully and freely forgives. So be like Christ. We're most like him when we're always willing to forgive. And so I would encourage you to take inventory of your heart and think about this. Is there someone that you're angry against? Is there someone here that's done something against you and you're bitter against them? Why haven't you forgiven them? Who are you most like? Are you most like the unforgiving servant that we find in the parable? Or are you most like the compassionate king? Be careful with the answer to that question because God can remove his protection from you. And what did Jesus say? He prayed and taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, how we are just met with this compelling story of how much that we have been forgiven. And probably, most likely, we don't sit around every day thinking about the terrible things that we've done against you and how gracious and merciful you were to send Jesus into the world to die for our sins. But how often we should contemplate this and how grateful that we should be that we sit here today redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and forgiven of our sins and on our way to heaven. So how can we not return that gratitude by showing our brothers and sisters in Christ a heart of forgiveness? Lord, I pray that you'd speak to someone today. Maybe there's somebody here who's not saved and they have realized today what we've so clearly seen in Scripture that all of us owe a debt that we cannot pay. There's no way that we can be good enough to pay it. There's nothing that we can offer God. There is no act that we can perform. There are no sacraments to keep that will help us. The only thing that will save us is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone to forgive us of our sins. Lord, speak to someone's heart today. They might trust you fully and completely and accept the grace and mercy that you offer us. And then for Christians that are here, draw us close to you and Lord, help us to see again how much that we've been forgiven of and how we really ought to treat other people in our church. Thank you, Lord, for what we learned from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation 
of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.